Hi, ladies, and welcome to Every Woman's Grace. And I can't believe here we are almost at the end of the book of Romans. We are now in chapter 15. And it was seven months ago that we started our study in this monumental book. And it was the third week into our study in September that I actually taught on Romans 1. Well, the world looks different today than it did in the fall of last year. So as a reminder, though, that God's word is timeless, I'll begin with what I ended with seven months ago. Back in Romans 1, we looked at the proclamation of God's gospel, prayer in God's sovereignty, and the power of God's gospel. And if you recall, Paul wrote the letter of Romans from the city of Corinth, and he had prayed that he could meet the Roman believers. And he finally did get to Rome, but it was as a prisoner. He probably didn't foresee that. He didn't know how God was going to answer that prayer. But of course, the Lord orchestrated it for good, since Paul's imprisonment led to the furtherance of the gospel. So back in September... I said that God answers our prayers with circumstances sometimes that we don't anticipate. He will sanctify us somehow and answer those prayers somehow and make us more Christ-like. And I said he'll do that through different ways. We know that. It could be our marriages. It could be something with our children. It could be health, financial, or prison. I didn't say quarantine. I didn't see that one coming, but now we can add that to the list. I know of a few stories, and I bet that you know of them too, of how God has answered prayers directly related to this stay-at-home order. If you had asked these people how they thought that God was going to answer that particular prayer, I don't think any of them would have said with a pandemic. The other thing I noted as I was looking in my past teaching is that I said to remember that Paul never considered himself a prisoner of the government or a prisoner of Caesar. He was always a prisoner of Christ. And if you're a believer, same, you are not a prisoner of the government or of any outside forces or any circumstance. You're a happy prisoner of the one who saved your soul. So Paul entered Rome on house arrest, and he preached the kingdom of God without being hindered. We're not imprisoned, quite, but we're certainly restricted. That is true in our lives right now. And in the same way as Paul did, ladies, I know that you are trusting God to bring about his purposes in this and bring fruit from this situation. So in the introduction in Romans... Paul had to wait a long time to visit the Roman church. Do you remember that? He wanted to desperately, but in God's providence, he hadn't been moved there yet. But his inability to do that gave the world this wonderful masterpiece of gospel doctrine. So good things can come from house arrest. In that chapter, chapter one of Romans, we had this glorious statement. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We have heard of some great stories of how the gospel has gone far and wide directly related to what we're facing. 
So let's read our text together. Open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Romans 15. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then later we will read 7 through 13. So Romans 15, 1 through 6, I'm reading from the New King James. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapters 1 through 11 in Romans are the foundational doctrine before Paul moves on to practical application in chapters 12 through 16. And that's what we're hearing here in Romans 15 of 1 and 2, that practical application. Some of the same things that Paul talked about in Romans 14. Not disputing, not judging, being unified for God's glory, being peaceable, and preferring others. So we're looking again, of course, at the harmony that's supposed to be happening in the body of Christ. So we have two points pleasing others for the glory of God and rejoicing together for the glory of God. So pleasing others. We have uh, 15 verses 1 and 2, that the strong must bear with the weak and not to please ourselves. And that is to receive and accept and walk alongside the weak. It's a command. Remember, the strong are not to view the weak negatively and the weak, vice versa, are not to view the strong in a judgmental way. In my study Bible, there is a good note, and I think it's very important. It has to do with bearing with the weak. In 15.1, the strong are not to simply tolerate the weaknesses of their weaker brother. They are to help shoulder their burdens by showing loving and practical consideration for them. So the definition of tolerate is to allow the existence or act of without prohibition or hindrance to permit to put up with. That definition is very neutral. As Christians, we're called to a higher standard than just to put up with someone. We are to be considerate of them and to shoulder the burden, which is much more challenging. We learned that principle in the last chapter, to put our own freedoms aside. If they would offend a brother or sister, why would we ever do something that would make a brother or sister stumble, someone for whom Christ died? Sacrifice for the good of your brother or sister. That is a much higher standard. We are to please our neighbor. Verse two, leading to edification. We are to actively pursue edifying other believers. And I think there is such a joy in that. To edify, to build up, to promote growth. And just by way of an architectural example, the closer the stones lie the better they are squared to fit one another, the stronger the building. Remember Romans 14, verse 19 from our last chapter. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. 
And then 2 Corinthians 12, 19b says, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. We do all things for your edification. So Paul continually speaks of unity and edification promotes that. It's crucial to the Lord that his church be unified. Therefore, it should be crucial to us. And one of the reasons I think that Paul talks about it so often is because of the potential for strife within the body of Christ. When we don't bear with weaknesses, but rather insist on our own way, there can be a lot of trouble. He had to address that with a couple of ladies, if you remember, in Philippians 4, 2, and 3. Remember that? I implore you, you, you Adia, and I implore Sintuki to be of the same mind. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Sometimes we think about division happening in the church because of big doctrinal issues, but that's why this is such a good example, because in this instance, that wasn't the case at all. These were prominent women in the church. Paul says that they've shared with me in the gospel. They could have been part of the initial struggle to even get the Philippian church built. Paul says they labored And that's an intense word, meaning they diligently struggled to proclaim the gospel. That would have taken a lot of self-sacrifice. They were true believers, names written in the book of life, faithful women. They were not disagreeing about a doctrinal error. We know that because that would have been handled much differently. That would have gotten church leadership involved. That would have gotten discipline to to happen. That would have gotten perhaps one or both of them to be put out of the church. Difference of opinion was driving them to lead opposing factions in the church over a matter of preference. So they were not loving one another. They were not bearing with one another's weaknesses. They were not trying to please one another. They were demanding that their opinion be known and followed. So something non-essential was being disputed, and it grew to the point where they had to be personally called out for the rest of biblical history. Paul said that he had to implore, which means to admonish, to entreat, to beg them to be of the same mind, to get others in the church to tackle the problem and to get these ladies to come to some kind of harmonious agreement, not bearing with one another's weaknesses and not pleasing our neighbor for his good can lead to bitterness, backbiting, and factions within the church. So to be like-minded shouldn't be taken lightly. It's actually a very serious command. So our scripture goes on to say in verse three, for even Christ did not please himself. And that's an added layer that we see here. Christ Not pleasing himself is something that Paul is bringing in to this verse. Christ did not please himself, and we know that we are to walk as he walked, so we are to do the same, not to please ourselves, but to edify, which is helpful to conform us to his character. Christ didn't consider where he would stay or his food or his comforts. Those were not the questions that he had. What mattered was the will of the Father. 
And I'm always struck by this verse in Matthew 8, 19 through 20. It says, then a scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In spite of his divinity, he had fewer physical comforts than most animals. To really think about that, foxes have their holes, their little holes, and birds of the air have nests, which are really remarkable little constructions of warmth and safety when you think about it and you see them up close. But the Son of Man, in his humanity, had nowhere to lay his head, no basic comforts of life, not even a transient home not even a tent. That's how unconcerned he was about himself. And you've probably experienced at least a couple of times in your life, I know I have, when you're not sure where you're going to lay your head. Either the hotels are all full or you get stranded in the airport. Any number of different reasons. But I know having experienced it, like I'm sure you have, that that situation can cause a lot of anxiety. And here's our Lord. Jesus lived his entire ministry without a home. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So not only were his comforts in short supply, by contrast, reproaches, slander, insults, false accusations, those were overflowing. And the easiest way to explain that verse, it's not an easy verse, it's just the easiest way to explain it in the Bible study note, men hate God and they manifested the same hate toward the one he sent to reveal himself and that's Christ. So another way to please one another to the glory of God is found in verse four and that's how we respond to the word of God. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scripture, we might have hope. Our submission and obedience to the word affects the body of Christ. As we are changed by scripture, we reflect our savior even more closely, and then we can encourage others. Have you not been encouraged time and again by the perseverance of the saints in the Old Testament and how the scripture has taught us patience and comfort leading to hope? There are so many Old Testament references that have carried me through and lifted my heart and taught me patience and perseverance. The scriptures, which I love, not only do they inform us how to endure, but they encourage us in the process. We have no lack of examples on how that's done. James 5.11 says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Have you heard Of the perseverance of Job? Yes, I have, and I love it. (laughs) And seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And perseverance, that definition in the New Testament, is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty by faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. You were asked in your lesson, ladies, to share a favorite example of encouragement from the Old Testament. And I really wish that I could sit in each one of your groups and listen to your story in which each one of you has to say. 
But a favorite example of mine of perseverance and learned patience is in Genesis and the story of Joseph, who was dealt treacherously with his brothers. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, and after some harrowing circumstances through a series of providential events, he became the most powerful man in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. He goes through this amazing time of forgiveness with his brothers and restoration. In Genesis 45, 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. Of course, they didn't recognize him since it had been 15 years and now he looks like an Egyptian prince. Please come near me. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler throughout the land of Egypt. I love Joseph's perspective on this. You sold me. God sent me. What a perspective. You sold me, but God sent me. And we have all, I am sure, benefited greatly from one of the greatest statements ever made by Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, to his brothers, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And in the same way, ladies, his same sovereign hand is over all that Joseph did all throughout the generations and over you personally as well in a personal way over your life. Then the next paragraph, after Joseph has dwelt in Egypt and he is now 110 years old, he says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So dying, Joseph is dying, and he is filled to the brim with resolute, trusting faith that God will bring about his promises. That's a learned response. From the age of 17, when his brothers threw him into the pit and then sold him into slavery, to the age of 110, that is 93 years of learning, 93 years of training. I can learn from that. That teaches me patience. That gives me comfort. That leads me to hope. Every promise in scripture is meant to inspire us to hope. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scripture, we might have hope. If your encouragement and your hope is faltering, what may be the problem? Sometimes I know for me, I give up too easily. That could be the same for you. When I come up against an issue, perhaps you as well, I ask myself, how long have I prayed this through? How long have I actually wrestled it out in scripture? Or how long have I complained about it or worried about it? And how much time have I spent in scripture praying about it. Where, where are the scales for you? How are they tipped? 
Not long ago, I had something that was really weighing on my heart, and it had to do with the heart of God and salvation. I've been a Christian 30 years. I've thought about this issue. I've read the scriptures. I've prayed. I've listened to sermons, but I was still not content with my understanding. Not like we'll ever be able to comprehend everything in God's word, not, not the depths of it, to be sure. And there are things that we won't understand the side of heaven, but God is happy to help us to trust him more. And that's really what I was after. So I just said, Lord, I've got to be missing something. But the answer that I have in my heart right now is simply not enough. I am not content. And I was literally at that moment gripping the pages of scripture and just saying, I am not going to let go until I have some sort of peace with this. So God, in his grace and mercy, led me in his word almost through like a treasure hunt of sorts where things just started to connect in a way that they haven't, that they didn't before. And I began to put things together that I hadn't before. And my spirit was lifted and I was comforted and it gave me hope. Psalm 119.24 says, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. In verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. And I agree wholeheartedly with verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. So going on with our treasure of scripture, look at Romans 15.5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and with one mouth or one accord glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love when titles are ascribed to God, patience and comfort. He is the God of heaven, the God of earth, the God of Abraham, the God of the Hebrews, the God of knowledge, the God of the armies of Israel, the God of my strength, the God of my salvation, the God of my life, the God of patience and comfort. So comfort means to soothe and console and to reassure and bring cheer to. Philippians 2.1 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, and comfort of love, the Greek word translated comfort portrays the Lord coming close and whispering words of gentle cheer and tender counsel into a believer's ear. How lovely is that? Then verse six says that we are to have one mind, one accord, and one voice, which again speaks to edification and strengthening. Philippians 2.2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. So not only is unity a command, not only does it glorify God, but it strengthens the church, strengthens the hearts of the saints, and it has a very encouraging effect on us. We know the description of the early church in Acts 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. In Acts 2, 44 through 46 says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So the spirit of God moves on the day of Pentecost. People are redeemed. And the first characteristic of those people is unity of spirit. They are of one accord, one in praise, one in fellowship, one in feasting, one in prayer, one in proclaiming God's gospel, one in meeting needs. This work of the Spirit was done within them, and that's the first thing that happened. Now, the best way to maintain unity is that each of us be personally concerned with conformity to Christ. Personally concerned. Our pastor would say conformity to Christ means that we seek to be more like Jesus rather than making everyone else like us. You see the difference there? Conformity to Christ should be our main concern, not getting others to be in lockstep with us. It's like when we say, I wish this person would do it my way. Things would be a lot smoother if they would realize that the way that I'm doing it is the right way to do it based on opinion. Instead of saying, Christ is growing me in humility. How, how can I use the situation or look at the situation as I must decrease, as John the Baptist says, and Christ must increase. When the matter comes up, when we're tempted to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, of course, you can always rehearse 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own. You can say that all day, every day. It does not seek its own. And then think about how to grow in the fruit of the spirit, in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control and faithfulness. So being spiritually elite and passing judgment, that's what we don't want to do. That is a characteristic of the Pharisees. But being humble and sacrificial and having unity of spirit is what marks a Christian. So just to recap, pleasing others for the glory of God, we want to uphold the weak, We want to look to Christ as our example. We want to be encouraged and submit to everything that we learn in scripture and to be like-minded to preserve the unity of the church, glorifying him together. So this leads us to point two, which is rejoicing together for the glory of God. So let's read that. We're in Romans 15, and we're going to read through 7 through 13. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to conform the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So what does it look like practically to accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us? Jesus said in Matthew ten forty. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So Christ, we know this, lives in us. We are his people. However, we treat one another as how we are treating him. How did he accept us? 
while we were yet sinners, we know that. And Christ died out of his remarkable love for us. And he invited everybody. That's always key. He invited everybody. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He invited everyone. The invitation is open. So he receives or accepts warmly anyone who will answer his call. While we were yet sinners, he called us, and Jesus accepts sinners impartially. Remember Paul's statement in Romans 2.11? There is no partiality with God. Looks, intellect, charm, money makes no difference to the Lord, and it shouldn't to us either. So at this point, ladies in our scripture, we're heading back into the theme of unity, and within that unity is the bond between Jew and Gentile. The letter of Romans is a declaration of God's sovereign plan to save both Jew and Gentile. The emphasis for the saved Jew is praising God for his truth that the covenant is being fulfilled, which he verified in Christ. And the saved Gentile praises God for his mercy provided in Christ and that salvation is offered to all. They are now welcome. We are welcome to partake in the glorious blessing of the one true God. Remember that current of conflict between Jews and Gentiles? You reviewed those scriptures in your lesson and you were to give an overview of how much Paul stresses unity in the book of Romans. And I think we sometimes wonder why he bangs that drum so often, but you can go through scripture and see the animosity between Jew and Gentile. It's all over the pages of scripture. It runs deep and Paul knows that. So in our text in verse nine, Paul starts to quote the Old Testament and he says, as it is written, remember in the beginning of our passage, whatever was written before was written for our learning. And it's interesting, I think, because Paul quotes the Old Testament, he says in the book of Romans, he quotes the Old Testament 14 times, starting with, as it is written. And I think about Paul and even the other writers in the New Testament and how their hearts must have leapt for joy every time they recorded something and wrote, as it is written, because now they were seeing those scriptures fulfilled, those prophecies fulfilled. So Paul quotes from the Old Testament from 9 through 12 of our passage, and they're beautiful verses that prove the redemptive plan of God always included the Jews and Gentiles. So in Romans 15, 9, when Paul says, as it is written, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. There, Paul is quoting 2 Samuel 22. And what I love about this is that it's part of the sweeping praise to God from David at the end of his life when he rehearses all these great things that God has done and how God has been his defender and his deliverer and his refuge and his strength. Verse 47 of that Samuel verse of that Samuel passage says, the Lord lives, blessed be the rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. 
You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And then in verse 10, Romans 15, 10, Paul is quoting from the Psalm 117. And he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And that is a universal call to praise, universal call to praise to God for his eternal kindness and truth. It's a global invitation, redemption offered to the ends of the earth. And again, and I love it because Paul keeps saying, and again, and again, and again, I say to you, Paul quotes Isaiah in verse 12, speaking of the root of Jesse, which refers to Jesus. It says in him, the Gentiles shall have hope, stressing that unity again. You know, at one time, you might know this from your Bible study, that Jews would dust their feet off before they entered Jerusalem, so as not to even bring any Gentile dust into Jerusalem. That's the level of separation and animosity. And although Messianic Jews and Gentiles make up the church, absolutely true, God be praised for that, religious Jews who don't embrace Christ still hold a more traditional view of that great divide that exists between them and the Gentile world. I had a colleague years ago, a wonderful woman, a Jewish woman, and we would have conversations about Christianity and Judaism and faith and religion. And one day we had a conversation about conversion. And I said to her, well, you know, you can become a Jew, right? I mean, you, you can convert to Judaism. And very kindly, she said to me, very honestly, well, technically, yes, but, you know, we don't ever really see that as legitimate. In other words, we don't really accept you. <laughs> and I laughed because I said to her, well, you know what? From my biblical study, I actually understand that. Historically, I know that to be true. But things are going to be very different one day. I love this verse in Zechariah 8.23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. That will be when the Jews will be God's messengers and bring multitudes to Christ. So even in skimming these verses, Paul says to sing, to rejoice, to praise, and to hope. Sing, rejoice, praise, and hope. That's helpful. That's a helpful reminder to have an attitude of thanksgiving, isn't it? So our last verse, ladies, is a wonderful, wonderful verse, a wonderful benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I love every one of those words. But before we have that inward ground of hope, God himself, as revealed in the Bible, must be our hope. And our hope is a deep spiritual satisfaction, unlike the English word hope. 
The dictionary definition today for the word hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that the events will turn out for the best. To look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence. A desire for some good accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it is obtainable. Our hope is joyful. It's a confident expectation without uncertainty. He is our hope. It's not a feeling that something may happen. It's not a desire of some expectation. It's trust in our great God who is faithful. Paul talked about it in Romans 5, that we've been justified through faith, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we stand in grace and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. So our scripture says that we are to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit and abound, what a great word, overflowing in large measure, rich in abundance. How is your hope? Are you filled with all joy and peace and believing? Abounding in hope, is it overflowing in large measure? In order for that to happen, we know that we have to trust our great God, the God of patience and comfort. In the Christian classic, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, one of the things that he points out in his chapter on choosing to trust God is this. This is a great definition. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them, despite the adversity that at times seems to overwhelm us. So even though we may sometimes think that we feel that we lose God's presence or that sense of hope, it's not true. He is always there. He is always with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So the author, Jerry Bridges, goes on to tell the story of John Newton, whom you know because he is the writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And he says, two months before his wife died, John's wife died, he said that his heart was torn with distress. And John Newton had known his wife since they were children and they were married for 40 years. And it really is a beautiful love story. So John Newton was struck with the thought, the promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. And Catherine Marshall, I I love something that she said years and years ago. This is an old author, years and years ago. She said that if you get stuck and you're not even willing, tell the Lord that you're willing to be made willing. If you have to go that far back, do that and pray and say, Lord, I am not willing. You know that because you know my heart, but I am willing to be made willing and surrender yourself at that point. So John Newton says, Lord, I am helpless indeed in myself, but I hope and I am willing without reserve that thou shall help me. He says he turned to the Lord, not even asking, but only indicating his willingness to be helped. He said, the spirit of God enabled my mind to realize great and leading truths of the word of God, and they became alive to him. And in my study notes, it says exactly that. The believer's hope comes through the scripture, which was written and is applied to every believing heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes all the difference. So in the beginning of this whole COVID-19 situation, one morning I was trying to work through some specific fears, not of 
myself, my own death as Christians. I know that we have a, um, a right view of death and glory. It was other qualifiers that had been sort of turning around in my brain. And I was praying and trying to grasp that extra element of God's sovereignty. And I just reached over to my bookshelf and I pulled out this exact book that I just mentioned, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And it sort of fell open to a particular page. I hadn't even really been intending to go there, but I read that page and it said this, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Note those absolute terms, absolute rule, constant care, all creation, nothing, not even the smallest virus escapes his care and control. So in God's word, I had been praying for that and God topped it off with that great reminder from Jerry Bridges book and the definition of sovereignty. So ladies, Let us rejoice together for the glory of God. During this lecture, I just absolutely really fell in love with this verse. And I know that I've been praying it for you and you've been praying it for the ladies in your group and the ladies in your group have been praying it for one another. And it's so beautiful. And that's my prayer for every one of us. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.